Uh, I know that some in our audience know the finer points of hockey. The Chris Johnston Show. We are your friends. The biggest stories, bringing you inside the game. What did you hear? The Chris Johnston Show. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. What is going on? Here's Chris with your host, Julian McKenzie. Part of the game. Big money CJ. Uh, it is Thursday. We are about four days into the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs. Before we get into how some of the other teams are doing before we get into series prices and cons my thoughts with David Bastel later and all that other stuff. How are you feeling? I, I'm going to do like these regular vibe checks with you because I know you're, you're going through the, the rigmarole of covering a playoff series. How are you feeling right now? My energy levels are good. Keeping uh, my mind in small places, just taking it one day at a time. Uh, but no, it's been fun. Honestly, it's been great being in back in the playoff atmosphere, having the fans back in the building in Toronto was awesome. The, the first two games I covered at Scotiabank arena uh, for a playoff game, especially game one was legitimately the, one of the loudest crowds I can ever remember there. Um, you know, so that that's, that's been fun. And, and yeah, it's a grind in the best way possible. Like you're doing exactly what you want to be doing, but it's, it's nonstop every day. I uh, should should have for my vibe check. I should have brought the sunglasses out because I'm heading to Tampa this afternoon after we record Ooh. this. So, so that'll be fun to get back down there and and you know cover a game at Amelie Arena. You know, always a great crowd in that building too. So I, I've been enjoying it. Caught some of the other games uh, between my my work for North Star Bets and TSN. And man, it's a long journey. That's the thing is you just gotta you literally. It's sort of like the players. You, you can't you can't be worried what's going to happen at the end of June. You just got to look after May fifth and May fifth. So it's been like, what, like 10 months since you've been at Emily Arena? Yeah, I was there the night they won the Cup in July. I think that was July 7th, if I'm not mistaken. So almost almost exactly 10 months uh, between visits for me. Uh, so when you're going to be in Tampa, I presume it might be still a little bit easier for you to talk to players, I guess, on both sides at Morning Skate. Has, has that changed at all in, in Toronto at all with regards to the access to players? It hasn't changed in the playoffs. It's been the same as the year. Um, basically, all the guys are brought to a podium uh, when we're on game days. There's a big, big scrum outside the dressing room on practice days. Really not very much one-on-one access um, at all. Uh, so I, I don't think that'll change. I mean, look, in the playoffs, it, it's not been my experience that you're getting a lot of one-on-ones as it is. There's a lot of eyeballs on these series. There's, there's more people covering them. I think that there's 20 traveling media um, following the Maple Leafs down to Tampa. 20. So that's, that's a lot of bodies, you know, plus the locals that are there covering the series as well. So, um, you know, you make do with what you got, work other contacts or sources in my case, and, and um, you know, just do your best. It, you, you, it's not always perfect, but you, you do the best you can. So we know all a lot of eyes are on Toronto and Tampa, uh, the cameras, TSN, all of that on that particular series. Let's imagine a world where that series does not exist. And there are only these seven other ones that are there. Which series of all the other ones beyond Tampa and Toronto would you want to cover the most? Good question. Is, is there a certain is there any limitations to my answer? Like you're talking about for the hockey, for the storylines, for the cities. I mean, it could be whatever. It's really just to cover it. Like for whatever, whatever criteria you want to set for your answer, you can do that. There's no limitations on that. Like Nashville, Colorado would be a good city 
playoff. Oh, I get that. You know that there's there's no there's no issues there. Uh, maybe maybe a hangover issue if, if you over <laughs> along the way, but that that would be a good hangover city or sorry, good uh, playoff cities for that. You know, probably Edmonton and and L.A. interests me the most in in a sense. I just think that the the consequences are so high for the Oilers. You know, they, they had a big pushback in Game Two, um, but but you know, I, I I would like to cover that series if I was choosing. Um, you know, I think St. Louis, Minnesota too, that they've played the same nights as the Leafs game. So I haven't actually been able to really watch the games as, as well uh, because of the overlap with the ones I'm covering in the building. But um, I think that the, the hockey in that series will just continue to go up. I know it's sort of one side of game so far, but um, th- those would be my choices. But if, if it's just the all fun series, I'd probably go Predators, Avalanche. Um, it, it's going to be quick. So you'd have to squeeze in your fun. I, I don't see that one going too long. Um, and then just for compelling storylines, I'm going Kings Oilers and for, you know, interesting hockey, I'm going blues wild. So like on your off days, are you, what series are you actually able to watch? Well, so today is an off day. So this is the Preds avalanche day. It's uh, the, the stars and flames day, obviously Panthers capitals. Um, you know, it seems like it's basically every other day. And so, and, and then Rangers Penguins as well. So th- those are the games I'll, I'll be dipping into once I get down to Tampa. I don't land until 7.30 or something Eastern time. So yeah, it, it you just do your best to follow out. I mean, like truthfully, the best way if you want to follow the whole playoffs would be to just have a multiple screens and set up at home, have good Wi-Fi and let her rip that way. You know, when you're covering a series, you're going to practices and you're traveling and all that stuff along the way. But um, good news is it's easy to catch up on the highlights for what you can't watch live. Oh, absolutely. The NHL actually does a pretty good job at just having those like highlight clips on like YouTube where they're pretty long enough where you can pretty much get everything. And yes, I have the multi-screen ordeal going down. I got the big screen that has the game I really want to focus on. I'll have like my laptop showing like the second place game, I guess. And sometimes I'll put a third game on the phone, but I try to just use that to like hop in the group chat or something. If I see like Steve Dangle going wild on his, uh, is watch a game with Steve Dangle. Dude was going crazy off. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Like, there's like a heart rate monitor well, on, on his streams. I, I haven't been able to watch the streams because I'm getting obviously. Game, but, but I heard about this, and someone sent me a screen grab. And at one point, his heart rate was at 133. I don't know if he's gotten higher than that, but that was one that was sent to me. And I actually looked at my run from that day because there's a heart rate monitor on my watch and literally like 30% of my run that day, I was between, I can't remember the exact range. It was like 127 and 140, but basically Holy like crap. Steve, like a third of my run was spent in the same aerobic zone as where Steve was watching a Leafs game, uh, which I just found hilarious. It's, it's not a brag on my end. I just think it just shows like that man is exerting energy uh, when he's watching a game, because I can tell you when I'm out there running 30% of the time, it's, you know, I'm putting some effort into it. Seriously. And and in the third period of that Leafs lightning game that happened on Wednesday night, as the Leafs looked as if they were trying to mount some kind of comeback of some sort, dude just started going into full on gladiator mode. Just his voice was changing and do need a lozenge at the end of that. I was getting very concerned. Like he was like borderline frothing at the mouth at that. I wonder how his voice is going to hold up. Like if, you know, if this ends up being a long playoffs for the Leafs and he's doing those every other night, plus his LFR videos, plus just, I assume he just walks around his house screaming all the time because that's the way it looks uh, based on all the videos I see. 
I mean, you better have a good tea and, and, and honey regimen going there. Absolutely. The one that actually, one thing I'll say about Dangle that I actually kind of feel bad for him for the fact that he has to do this series, right. And he has to do it from his blue room. He has the convenience of being where he's at, but like, if he has to do that for every single game and it's a long playoff run, say like the Leafs go to the final, like he can't be at that game. He has to be in his room. Like he can't go to any of these games. Like that's that's, a lot of time spent in the basement. Yes. Yes. That's why I don't know. I kind of, I kind of feel a little bit for Steve here, but anyway, uh, we don't need to feel that bad for Steve. It's time for David Bastel. It's time for sports interaction. It's time for us to look at some odds and some bets that we can place at this juncture of the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, CJ, um, I don't think I know what your Consmith pick is. Do you have one at this point? I mean, it's very early, obviously, but like maybe like one you made before it all began, the playoffs, I mean. No chance. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting involved in that game. First of all, because I don't want to steer anyone the wrong way who might be looking to make a play. And, and, and it's just too soon. Like I get why people maybe want to make that speculative thing, but like I get, because people inevitably during the playoffs will start writing like the Con Smythe column after the first round. And I'm always like, this is just asinine because it's sort of like people want to give out the heart trophy in December. Um, you know, I suppose it's interesting to track where it's at as you go along, but um, let's face it, the Consumite Trophy is 94% of the time from the winning team. We, we have seen the occasional uh, losing player in the cup final win it. And, you know, we don't know how these teams are going to win yet. Like, if you like the Avalanche, you, you got four or five players that are probably going to be in the mix potentially for that. If, if, if it's Tampa that wins another cup, as we've seen, you know, Kucherov won one of the Consumites, Hedman won one, you know, Braden Point could have won at, at some point, Vasilevsky. Oh, sorry, Vasilevsky could have won. I think Vasilevsky did win last year. Sorry, Kucherov didn't win. This is the whole point is that, you know, teams that win tend to have multiple choices. So I'm not I'm not going down that road just yet, but I'm sure over the course of the next few pods, as we whittle the teams away, that you'll 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 wrestle one out of me. Okay. That gives me an idea for something else we could also do before the end of the playoffs as well. I'll table that for now. In the meantime, let's actually run through the playoffs series as they are right now. Uh, Just more general thoughts on everything that has taken place to this point. I'd like to obviously start with Tampa Bay Toronto because you've been at that series the most. You've been at the games. Uh, You sent us a photo the other day of, uh, not the other day, but last night of some fans. They spotted you at the Scotiabank Arena. Well, yeah, that's couple, awesome. A uh, couple big SDP fans pulled me aside and, and wanted a photo, I guess, because Steve wasn't there. I was the next best thing. So um, that, that was pretty cool uh, being on the concourse and see everyone. I mean, it's, it's great being around the atmosphere. What, what's, you know, in terms of the hockey in the series, I think what surprised me the most through two games is just how much of it has been special teams. Um, you know, usually in the playoffs, we sort of associate it with the, the whistles going away. I think it's not even a complaint. I don't necessarily think the referees have done a poor job, but I don't even have a sense of sort of the matchups or who's going well at five on five, because there's just been so little five on five play, you know, that, that, that was set right in the first game. Toronto was, was shorthanded for seven of the first 12 minutes of game one. Um, you know, so, you know, Austin Matthews, I think had two shifts in the first 12 minutes. Uh, it's just not quite what you'd expect. Uh, and so it, it's hard to have a handle on the series. I mean, certainly, a special team series could go both ways, actually, for these teams. I mean, the Leafs were, were 
elite in both ends of it. They, they've, they've scored a couple of shorthanded goals already in the series. Obviously, both teams have very dangerous power plays, lots of star power. And the biggest question I have, I, I suppose, as we look at the game three and, and what happens next is, will this continue to be called this tight? Will the players adjust? Or will the emotions continue to come out? Um, you know, what's what's sort of unique about the Leafs and Lightning is they played two games in, in April, right towards the end of the regular season. Both of them were blowouts. Leafs won one 6-2, and then the Lightning won the other one 8-1. And so there was a fair amount of emotion in those games. And I feel like it's kind of spilled over and maybe even to some degree dictated how it's been officiated by the league. And, you know, just, just having heightened awareness of guys like Pat Maroon and Corey Perry, Wayne Simmons, you know, Kyle Clifford obviously was suspended early in the series. So it's for a series that has all the stars and the stars have actually put up some points. It, it's still kind of a lot of the focus is on, you know, the extracurricular things that are going on. And, and so uh, it's hard to have a handle just yet on, on who's controlling what or who's getting the better of the matchups. If home ice is worth anything, you know, that's still to be determined. Yeah. Does the fact that both games swung so heavily in the favor of one team Toronto flat out dominating Tampa and then Tampa eventually wakes up in game two and yes the score ended up being five three but for the most part the lightning just took advantage of chances they had on the power play and really made it their game that's also what's really intriguing about this series like I think a lot of people were thinking man you know what the lightning maybe they look tired they're not going to be in it but they completely subverted those expectations on their head after game two yeah, and they keep this amazing streak going, right? They haven't lost two games in a row going back to the start of their 2020 Cup run uh, in the playoffs. And that's, I mean, the, the simple math will tell you if you don't lose two games in a row, you got a great chance to win the Cup. I mean, you can still lose a series, I guess, if you lose games one, three, five, and seven without losing two in a row. But in general, you know, what the Lightning have done well is bounce back from either poor performances or bad breaks, whatever's happened in, in their losses along the way, was really not a, a great showing for them in game one. You know, Vasilevsky showing up as well as he did in game two, I think is is a real good sign because Leafs had a great first period in game two. I mean, it, they, they could have taken the lead, if not for some good goaltending, some good penalty killing from Tampa too. They had two early penalties that they had to kill. And then the Lightning sort of slowly took over that game through the middle stretch. And, and so, look, I, I think the fact we both picked a, a seven-game series here, in some ways that's – this is playing out to our expectation in the sense that it's there's nothing really yet to, to – like one team isn't doing something that I'm saying the other guys can't handle this. Like it feels a little bit like there's a feeling out process and they're trading some, some punches, but um, I don't see one team yet with a clear edge, I guess, other than you probably like, like the lightning's experience and they have the next two games at home at Emily arena. Um, you know, that, that, that has them in a good spot, but you know, I just think this is going to be a long series. It goes back and forth. How did the Leafs respond? after that game two loss, like listening to them in the locker room, listening to, or not sorry, not the locker room, but listening to them talk about it post game. My biggest thing with the Leafs is just whenever they come across adversity, it seems as if that's when, you know, things start to fall apart. So I'm just curious about how they're handling all of this heading into game three. Well, as best as I can tell, they're different in that regard. Like they didn't seem rattled at all. Didn't seem, emotional no one complained for example about the refereeing you know the the Tampa had seven power plays I believe in the game sometimes after that kind of game if you're frustrated you might take issue with one or two of the penalty calls like there's none of that you know I I got they were pretty even keel all things considered again as far as I can tell in the media interviews we're not in their dressing room it's you know it's hard to know everything but um, I, I do see a team that's grown up a little bit in that regard I thought they handled the emotions of game one well too, because that, that one could have went them with, with all the, the penalties uh, 
they, they took early in the game. And so it doesn't, doesn't guarantee any success, but you know, this is the sixth go round for Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and William Melander in a playoff series. You know, the, the, this team is, has been through a lot. Um, and I, I do think that they've grown and matured in some ways, but I mean, they're facing a, a Titanic opponent right now. So, um, you know, you, you need that at minimum to have a chance in this kind of series, but man, it's, it's, I can't predict where it's going to go next. I, I, I'm pretty excited to see it. I, I think at some point we're probably due for a tighter game with all kinds of tension and chances back and forth and great goaltending. Like, I, I think that that's probably going to happen one of these next couple games, you know, maybe not so many power plays, you know, and, and so that, that'll be pretty compelling because, you know, Victor Hedman, as I mentioned, had four points in, in game two. Matthews and Marner put up points. You know, Kucherov had a nice goal, Braden Point scored in game two. I mean, the stars are showing up so far in the series. And so I think that there's a real chance for, for them to, to, you know, put on a good show here in the back half. So the way you were describing the potential for that type of game, a tight game, not a lot of power plays, some great goaltending. I'll tell you what, if we that's basically what game seven of Tampa Bay, New York Islanders was like in the third round. And if we get that in the Leaf series, I don't know about you. That could end up being one of the best games of the year. I don't mind a defensive struggle if the goaltending is just otherworldly. Well, and Dangles heart rate might hit 150 if that happens. So, I mean, shit, (laughs) you want to have the paddles ready just in case we need to, you know, revive the poor man. But um I mean, it's only going to get more tense. Like, I can tell you, like, I don't know how it feels for those that are maybe watching from afar, but in the building, there's just there's a real crazy feel to the series. I mean, it, it's so obvious to me. I mean, you have the the, the rock and the immovable object here. I mean, it, the, the Leafs probably won't fit. If they were ever, ever able to get by Tampa, I'm not sure they're going to play a better team than Tampa. It doesn't mean they're going to keep winning because all sorts of dynamics happen. Injuries come into play, fatigue, all this stuff. But this, this could be the best team they play if they play multiple playoff rounds. I think that that's, that's kind of compelling in and of itself. And, you know, again, I, I haven't seen anything yet to say one team is clearly better than the other. I, it's just, um, you know, it's just been kind of weird with all the power plays. But, you know, I, I have no way, no sense of which way this one's going yet. Okay, let's touch off on some of the other games that I know are kind of happening around the, uh, on the same days as this leaf series. So totally cool. If you don't have the same expansive knowledge on these, I just want to touch up on them just so we can, you know, go through the rundown properly. And it seems like one story that is emerging out of Carolina is the fact that they are able to get wins over the Boston Bruins, despite the fact that they don't have Freddie Anderson and anti Ranta uh, gets run in by David Pasternak. And it comes down to Piotr Kochetkov, the third string goalie. I was in the AHL for most of the year to handle the job. And he gets himself a his first career playoff victory uh, in game two against the Bruins. I, this is a really interesting story. And it's really putting into light the fact that the Carolina Hurricanes, seemingly when it do, doesn't really matter who they have in, in their net, they are able to get wins when it really matters. Well, they're a really good team, right? And they do a good job generally all throughout the season of controlling shot share and, and limiting chances. And so, you know, Frederick Anderson had a great regular season for Carolina, but I think he also benefited from some of the team play in front of him. And if you're a Hurricanes fan, you hope that this is sort of shades of Cam Ward in 2006 when he was mm. a younger goaltender who came in uh, early in the playoffs after a couple losses in that case and, and, you know, ran the table and helped them win a Stanley Cup. Um, you know, Pyotr Kochetkov, pardon yeah. my pronunciation, uh, is, is a well-regarded prospect. He's just young. He, you know, at least he's played professionally in Russia. 
and spent, you know, this season playing here, mostly in the AHL uh, in North America, but um, you know, we'll see how far they can, can run it. This, I've been a bit surprised uh, that, that it's gone the way it has, you know, just because of the, the opportunity in front of the Bruins that the chance, even having anti Ranta net, you know, Ranta is a veteran in the league, but you know, it doesn't have a long playoff resume to lean back on. And, and, you know, I, I think I identified the Bruins through one of the Ask CJ questions as like a dark horse team in this playoff. So that, that, that little bit of opinion isn't, isn't holding up too well after a few days of the playoffs, you know, but you, you really haven't won a series. I don't think until you win in the other team's building. Um, generally speaking that that's, that's what it takes. And so if Boston can go home and hold serve, this will probably look different uh, when we're recording on Monday again, but um, right now the Bruins really are, are, sort of being pushed into a corner uh, by the hurricanes the way it's gone. And, and they have to find a way, I guess, to try to, to puncture any, any confidence that the, the young goaltender, the hurricanes have in there might, might be, might be uh, holding. You talk about anti Ranta not having a lengthy playoff history. His very first playoff victory came in game one against the Boston Bruins. If you want any idea about how that has gone for him. Exactly. And you know, Carolina's producing a lot of offense. I mean, there's some questions, I think, about the Bruins goaltending early in the series. So, um, you know, I, I pick Boston in six. My pick looks like junk right now, which is why I always say be careful with our predictions, putting too much talk in them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I also was, was telling you too, Julian, though, that there would be some surprises through the playoffs. I'm not saying this will be one, but maybe if we touch next on Washington and Florida, you know, that that – maybe that's where our surprise comes from. I mean, the, the, the playoffs is so hard and, and the first round in particular and, and everything starts back at zero and, and you know, what you did in the regular season really doesn't matter a whole lot. If, if you get to, to the big dance and your, your players aren't executing or you're not performing at your best. And so the Bruins haven't been very good through two games and we'll see, you know, a pretty proud experience group on their end. I know that, that, you know, some of their impact guys are older at this point in time, but, yeah, I would expect them to have a pretty strong game three with with their season not officially on the line, but sort of unofficially uh, dangling there. I, I go into these predictions knowing that I'm going to get stuff wrong. I don't know about you, but like oh, yeah. whenever people, yeah, like come on, whenever people get all serious, like, oh, you said this team's going to win, you were wrong. Okay, great, congrats. Well, <laughs> yeah, I lean, I lean on me picking Calgary, for example, to win the North Division. You know, last year in, in the oh Col- yeah. And I did it for, you know, I just saw a good defensive team. You know, they'd actually had a fair amount of success in the years before that. They'd signed Markstrom and, and Tanev, and I, I just liked their mix. And then last year was a disaster, and this year they're one of the best teams in the league. And, and I still believe the team I picked to win the North Division was pretty good. It just it didn't work out. And so, you know, it, it's the it's the fun of it, though, is, is if we knew it was going to happen, it'd be pretty boring. You know, I I like the NBA playoffs, but it, there's, there's way fewer surprises that happen there and you know maybe that's more just in a sense like if we're just talking about true fairness that the best absolute best team wins more often than not whereas i think that there is some degree of, of luck or good fortune involved in winning a stanley cup at times um you know i still find the stanley cup playoffs more compelling as a whole yeah i'll say this though with with the nba playoffs even if we even if like the first few rounds are not as surprising as what the NHL playoffs can provide, still providing a lot of good entertainment. Uh, and I think for in particular this year, a lot of people were thinking the Nets and the Lakers would be at the end of it all, very much not going that way at all. But we'll put, we'll table that point for a moment. 
Uh, I want to mention just the Blues in the Wild. That series is tied a bit similar to what we saw in the Tampa Toronto series where both teams are able to uh, get a big win over each other. Uh, the Minnesota Wild, two playoff hat tricks, Joel Erickson Eck and Dollar Bill Kirill Kaprizov getting a hat trick of his own. That's my man's Kirill Kaprizov. I, I was asked in the, in the Q&A on Discord earlier this week who my favorite player in the NHL is right now, Kirill Kaprizov easily that dude for me and he gets himself his first playoff hat trick so i'm i'm just i'm just happy for Kirill to get get the job done there yeah real strong response from them after game one i thought it was interesting they stuck with mark andre fleury um just because you know as we've talked about having two good goaltenders is a is a benefit in the playoffs and but i think how you handle them can be difficult there's sort of a fine line between switching the goalie to maybe switch the energy or, or the performance but you might also look like you're panicking, like, oh, we lost one game. Now we got to go to a whole different plan. You know, Dean Evison was pretty clear. You know, he basically said to the effect, it wasn't a hard decision. This was before game two. You know, we looked at it. Flurry made a bunch of first and second and third saves. Sometimes, you know, we just weren't cleaning up the stuff around him with all the goals that went in against him in game one and, and you know, proved to be a pretty good uh, re- response from from the wild. And, and, you know, now they go to St. Louis. I mean, this is this one feels like a seven gamer. Just, just the way these teams have been built. The, the fact the Blues have had a lot of success actually against Minnesota. You know, I don't always put a ton of credence in those stats, but but there's there's enough of a, a track record there to, to see it. And you know that they, the Blues are going to have to find an answer for Dollar Bill Kirill because uh, you know he had a really strong playoffs last year in terms of production, and to see him come hot out of the gates again just shows you know his what what we've seen in the regular season of him is is not an aberration. This guy's a, this guy's a gamer and, and he's and in my eyes, totally changed the view of the wild. I mean, I know they have lots of other players and there's, there's been some smart moves made there, but you know, he's, he's given them a dynamic quality that they just really haven't had as an organization too much. And, and you know, that's why they're, they maybe were a good uh, sleeper pick. Yeah. And you mentioned with the blues, uh, you know, needing to figure out some ways to handle dollar bill Kirill. Uh, they're looking it looks as if they're dealing with some injuries right now. I think uh, they already don't have Marco Scandella. I believe Robert Pertuzzo also got banged up as well. Nick Letty also not available to them. Uh, they're dealing with the fact their defense core is taking some major hits in this series. They're going to need to call up on whatever depth that they have uh, to help them going forward for the rest of that series. It could, but I'm with you. This could go seven. These are two really evenly matched teams, really skilled teams. They can both score. They can defend. This is going to be a good series. I've been, I've been high on this series since before the playoffs. And I really think it's worth people's time. After you finish the Leafs games, watch Minnesota St. Louis. If you can at least well, do that. The teams that, that play into the third round of the Stanley cup final often use nine defensemen. You just don't want to be, nine defensemen deep on the third day of the, the, the playoff. Like that, that's, that's a difficult thing to overcome. I'm not saying they can't, but you know, to have those types of injuries on the blue line, I mean, really the blue line is one of the, the blue strengths at the best of times, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty stout back there, but um, you know, it's, it's tough to withstand those sort of injuries already in, in the early days of, of this, this tournament. Any thoughts on Oilers and Kings? That series also tied. I didn't realize this, but the Oilers, they win game two. It's their first playoff win in five years. It snaps a seven-game postseason losing streak. Massive win. And, and not just the way it happened. I mean, obviously, 6 nothing is a great result. You know, Mike Smith was wearing the goat horns a little bit after game one, giving the puck away before the winning goal. For him to go in there, back in there, and have a shutout is a pretty good response but I think just given 
that five years between playoff wins and then sort of the, the mounting idea that, that something was off. I, I think it, it relieves some pressure. Uh, it's still going to be a tough series. I, I thought all along the Kings would be, you know, I, I didn't go look at everyone's predictions, but it seemed like a lot of people just assumed the Oilers would run this series quickly. I, I thought the Kings would give pushback because of the players they have that, that can, can neutralize Edmonton, you know, and, and, the Oilers are dealing with some of those demons. We talked about the Leafs a little bit. It just, just, you know, some of it's between the years. It's not all just a team building issue. Although, you know, we'll see how the goaltending goes. You know, Mike Smith, it was so good down the stretch. Uh, and so to see maybe if, if he, you know, puts that game one behind him, he's a, known to be a battler. Um, you know, this, this is a good, good spot for the others to be in. So, you know, I, I, I like the pushback. I like that they even did. It would be, man, imagine they're going to LA down, Oh, two. I mean, that, that would have been a difficult spot. I think they've, they've managed to maybe calm some waters locally there and, and, you know, are in a good spot to, to, to keep working their way through and, and beat the Kings. Absolutely. I mean, I like the Kings being tied one, one heading back to, uh, to Los Angeles. Like if I, I think if you're the Kings and you have that going for you, maybe you work a little bit more defensively for games three and four, you could find yourself in a position where you can get another series split. I mean, Maybe this also goes the distance too. Like I, I, I like the king. If you're the Kings right now, I don't mind being in the situation that you're in at one-one with the goaltending and the defending that you have. Look, the firepower that's there, you can only hope to contain it as opposed to completely stop it. Well, Todd McClellan said, "We're not just here for the experience; we're here to win the series." You know that, which is a, a good mindset. But I also think that there's not nearly the pressure on that that side of things, um, and and I. It's not just because a bunch of national media picked the Oilers. I just think that the, where they're at as a franchise, they're they're turning things over, and they, they do have younger players, and so the experience will be valuable, win win or lose for for the Kings. Whereas the Oilers, it's almost just like no excuses, get the job done, or or you know, or else. Uh, I don't even know what that else is just yet. Let's not contemplate it until we see how the series plays out. But there, there's there's clearly some consequences in the air a little bit different to scale in, in Edmonton's end of things. And that's why finding a response with the way the game one ended, I think was, was huge for, for Connor McDavid and crew. Okay. So let's look ahead to some games that are going to take place uh, on Thursday evening, Thursday night. Uh, but also looking back at some of the games that happened from those series as well. We're pretty uh, deep on without mentioning spicy pork at this point and broccoli. I mean, I mean, not go this long. I, I should have had some spicy broccoli for my breakfast here just to you know to bring it i'm glad you brought that up because that is the very series i was going to next and i have questions how spicy was that pork louis domingue had yeah i mean then again he is an he is a client of alan walsh maybe we can ask alan walsh how spicy that pork was yeah i love the interview for those that haven't seen it just the way he hesitates and then he's like, not the best. <laughs> a food review after revealing that he, you know, for those that missed it, that he'd eaten spicy pork and broccoli between overtime periods because he never expected to be in the game as, as I mean, for one, he's the Penguins' third stringer, and, and he was the backup in that game in, in case Casey Smith got injured, and he had to go in and, and you know, made 17 saves and, and, you know, watch his team win in triple overtime. So, you know, pretty cool little playoff story. It's what I like about the playoffs. Stuff like this always happens. You know, players get in. I remember the Penguins, I think it was their 2016 cup run. Jeff Zatkoff had to, had to play a game at the start of a series and he won it. 
Um, you know, there's always these little folk folklore things that happen along the way and, and cool stories and, and that spicy pork and broccoli is going to gonna going to be remembered for some time. Yeah, as long as he didn't have to go to the bathroom like a certain goalie in Vancouver might have had to before a playoff game. So, yeah, it's a fun story. But also the fact that the Pittsburgh Penguins getting the series advantage and Sidney Crosby being at the center of it. I mean, we've been talking about it throughout the podcast this year about how he's had himself a fantastic year. I know Jake Gensel did the thing with some goals, but Sidney Crosby, a facilitator that entire game. I think he was the best player on the ice between both teams throughout most of that contest. No question and probably no surprise really for, you know, given what we've seen from him over a long career, you know, Malkin scores a triple overtime winner, but, but he really didn't tilt the game nearly as much as, as Crosby did. And, you know, I think it's a good reminder though of what it takes to win in, in the playoffs. Is it, you know, the, the player that might be your best player in the game or, or among the best line doesn't always score the winning goal. You, you need everybody, you need moments, I think sometimes to keep a playoff run going along the way. And that was a big moment for the Penguins to win that game. I mean, Igor Shosturkin did everything he could in his playoff debut to keep, you know, the, the Penguins from taking a series lead there. And, and uh, I think some of the experience of, of Pittsburgh paid off, but, but who knows now what the, the situation is going to be. I mean, Domingue starts game two and, and, you know, I don't know what the health status will be of Tristan Jari or if the, the Smith will be able to come back. And so, you know, this is, this is far from over, but uh pretty great opening night of that series. And, and, you know, fans who paid for a ticket got their money's worth with five plus periods of hockey. Did you have any thoughts on the goalie interference call that occurred before the end of regulation, which if it went the other way would have resulted in Philip Hedl being the hero for the New York Rangers. Really tough play, right? It looks like you, you can make an argument. Maybe it's Dumoulin. Uh, that knocks his own goaltender out of position there, not Capo Caco, who's coming in on, on the, the rush. Um, you know, I, I think the right call was made, but the, the truth is it, it, the, there will be plays like this that even with slow-mo replay and the ability to review it, that, that you don't get 100% certainty on, right? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a gut call by the officials. I didn't have a problem with it being overturned, but I can see the logic. You know, I saw Carlo Coliacomo on Twitter tweeting about it. Like, and he's, you know, he was a defenseman in the NHL. Like he's, and, and he thought, you know, Dumoulin was the one to blame. And so um, really difficult call for the officials, but I didn't, I didn't mind that personally. I, you know, obviously the goaltender needs to have a chance to make the save. And, and, you know, in this case, he was swept right out of the net before the puck went in. Yeah. That was my thinking. Capo Caco like comes in, and barrels into Casey DeSmith and kind of pushes him out the way. He's not able to get back to the net to stop that chance. Yeah, I, honestly, like I, I was talking with a, with a Rangers fan as this was going down. And like, I, I have to admit, like I, as, as much as I thought initially that it was going to go the Rangers way with the benefit of replay, I was able to see that the referees actually made a good call. We're still talking about how difficult it is to call goalie interference but we have to give the referees their due here. Have they actually got this call right? Well, let's give them their due for the first few days of the playoffs. I don't think that there's been, you know, it's really tough. Not There's always going to be some controversy because everyone's so emotional. And, and obviously, if you're a Rangers fan, you probably hate that call. If you're a Penguins fan, you thought it was the right call. You and I yeah. fall in the neutral category here, and, and I don't mind the call. But I think, by and large, the officials have done a good job in the early parts of, of this playoffs. You know, even again in the Lightning and Leaf series, they, they've called a lot of penalties, but 
I think a lot of them have been penalties, you know, maybe one or two ticky tack calls, but for the most part, I, I think what's been a big focal part uh, of this season, uh, the, the, the officiating, I think it's, it's gone pretty well. Now I can't stop thinking about spicy pork and broccoli and trying to think of what that recipe is actually like. Did you is see the picture Alan Walsh put out? It didn't, it didn't no. look very much not the best. Oh, I did not even realize there was like a photo of this. Yeah, he shared a photo that Louis Domingue sent him and, and of, of the meal. And, you know, I don't want to pick on the catering at Madison Square Garden, but. I, I, I kind of want to watch, look at this photo. Okay, Louis I'm Steve. live. Louis taking a pretty central role in these playoffs. I don't know if you heard that William Elander had food poisoning on game the day of game one. He had some bad sushi for his pregame meal and was unfortunately bringing it up. Uh, before playing in a game. So, I mean, you got to watch what you're eating this time of year, my man. Um, so I should say this uh, for those watching, uh, you might've noticed my eyes kind of squint a little bit. I found the photo that looks horrible. This meal looks absolutely disgusting. The broccoli looks okay. I, I don't know the, 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 the spicy pork. I'm, I don't know about that, bro. I don't know about that. I would not have eaten that. Maybe, be me. maybe Louis Domingue's eating it before game two. I mean, athletes can be superstitious, man, and it certainly worked in this night. I don't know, man. I'm not trying to have my belly run before a playoff game. That does not look that appetizing to me, but maybe I'm just built different. Okay, uh, that's enough spicy pork and broccoli talk. Uh, <laughs> still a few more series we didn't touch on, but the, the Colorado Avalanche, speaking of them, imagine being in Nashville uh, for games three and four of that series. And maybe the Avalanche have a chance to sweep. I know game two hasn't happened yet, but game one, they looked on 10. Like the, the speed, the scoring, the offense, everything. They they the Avalanche got the job done and they look scary. Yeah, I mean, when it's five-nothing in the first period of the first game and, and you've chased the goaltender, I mean, that that's that's a pretty strong statement to start a series. Um you know, it's kind of gone as we thought. I mean, not having UC Soros is a huge loss to the Predators. You know, I, I don't know that he's going to be able to get back in the series. You know, it sounds like the, the issue he's dealing with would typically keep him out weeks. You know, it's the playoffs, so we'll never be surprised if, if UC tries to go, if there's some sort of treatment that, that can allow him to get back in there. But even if he does, I don't know that he can be his, his usual self. And, you know, for me, he's become – he's in the top tier of the goalies. You know, like I, I'm not putting him ahead of a – Vasilevsky or anything at this point, but you know, he's had two great years in a row uh, last year's COVID season. And then this year played 67 games in regular season. You know, David Riddick didn't get a lot of action for, for Nashville and he gets chased in game one of the series. And so it's just hard for me to construct a way for the predators to, to, to win this one. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's probably been reflected in most people's thoughts on it. I mean, the avalanche are, Bonafide cup contender and, and Nashville's down its best player and would have been an underdog even, even with Soros there. So, or at least one of their best players. I mean, maybe you make an argument for Roman Yossi or Philip Forsberg or someone, but um, you know, they're, they're in a real tough spot and, and they, they've just got to try to focus on trying to win one game and, and, you know, stretch it out as long as they can. But I think that's going to be difficult for them. Did you read the players tribute article uh, by Nazem Kadri that he put out, I believe the other day? Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, good to see Nazem Kadri uh, just being obviously a big focal point for for a cup contending team, uh, while also just you know getting this opportunity for him to win a Stanley Cup on a really good team in Colorado. Who knows what his future is going to be like after that, with regards to him being a UFA? 
but no, I, I, I like the Nazem Kadri story. It was good to see that he's able to do player tripping. I find like the articles have lost a bit of luster for me from when the first year when they were really doing them, but uh, it's cool to see NHL players get some of those articles. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite the real thing, right? I think it's part of it. Um, but look here, it was interesting. And Nazem went in on sort of his end of some of the playoff suspensions he's had, you know, revisited the trade out of Toronto and how dif- disappointing, difficult it was for him and his family, but explained why Denver has quickly, you know, turned out to be a sort of, I guess, a blessing in disguise, or it's been a better experience than he expected. I mean, real honest stuff. You know, I, I happened to, to get to know Nazem pretty well. I covered his entire career as a leaf right from the day he was drafted in Montreal in 2009 through that trade in 2019. And so, you know, what I've always appreciated about him is he never shied away from controversy. Um, he was always open. I would say uh, more than most athletes to discussing the good and the bad of the game or things that happened to him. And, and so it didn't surprise me to see him pen, you know, a compelling piece, you know, with, with the players tribune, because he has always been a fairly open book for someone in his position. And I, I think he likes the spotlight. I think we talked about being a Kobe Bryant fan as a kid and the, the Mamba mentality. Like, I think he, mm-hmm. he likes putting the game on his shoulders. It, you know, I do believe that's, that's led in some ways to those playoff suspensions as he's trying, you know, he really wants to be at the center of everything. Like he doesn't shy away in the big moment, but you know, he's obviously gone a bit too far, particularly the DeBrusque suspension that the second suspension he got in the Leafs, the, the second Leafs Bruin series, where he was defending Patrick Marlowe and, and crossed the line. You know, I think, you know, you, you got to try to, you got to ride. Like I can't imagine trying to ride that line in the playoffs. Like you, you, you obviously need to play with emotion and intensity and, and, you know, you're in a battle truly like it's a mindset, but you know, if you cross it, the consequences can be huge, whether it's taking a big penalty in a game that costs your team or, or in his case, he's been suspended now a few times. And, and had to watch big games from from his couch, and that that's not easy either. Yeah, what what sucks too is that because it's happened to him so many times, this reputation just kind of like follows him, and like it's he's it, it in a weird way he's become a bit of a punchline. It's like oh, Nazem Kadri could do well in the playoffs if he stays out of trouble. But I, I, if I was Nazem, well, like, I'd true. be a bit bothered. I, it's true. I just I would be still kind of bothered, even though it is the truth. Yeah. I mean, the reputation's earned in, in a sense, like I know he feels those suspensions maybe were a bit harsh or punitive. Um, but you know, he's, he has cl- like, there's no defending the hit on Justin Falk in last year's playoffs. There's no defending cross-checking and, and lunging up on Louis DeBrusque in the face. I mean, there, there, he, he, he has, he has committed clear infractions. I think maybe he'd say they shouldn't have been in as many games as they were. I mean, that, he put himself in a position where player safety might give him those games. You know what I mean? He didn't, he didn't keep it within the line. And so he's, he's opened himself up to having that sort of reputation. Yeah. Also Jake DeBrusque, not Louis DeBrusque. If it ended up getting to a point where he got to Louis DeBrusque, that might open up a whole other can of worms. Louis, Louis uh, is my former sports set teammate. He's a great guy. And uh, I guess I got Louis on the brain there. Sorry. I imagine that by the way, Louis DeBrusque, just as someone who's never met Louis DeBrusque, I really like his work in the booth, whether it's with uh, it's Jack Michaels, his name in, in Edmonton or yeah. Arnor Ryan Singh. He's doing a lot of work with him during the Edmonton King series. I am a big fan of Louis DeBrusque. I really appreciate his analysis. I really appreciate it. it breaks things down. I, 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 I like Louis DeBrusque in the, in the booth. Um, what about flames and stars? I mean, that game one, you know, the flames only need one goal and they were able to shut down the stars for the rest of the way. 
yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, war of words or, or back and forth with, with this Rasmus Anderson, John Klingberg fight. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of the playoffs too, right. Is, is going back and forth. Yeah. I see Daryl Sutter try to put out the, put out the fire. He's like, these guys won't be fighting again this series. Like quit asking me about this, but um, you know, tempers are up already in that series. And, you know, look, everyone thinks the flames are going to romp it, but the fact it's a one, nothing game, I think is, is, is obviously the way the stars want to play. I, I just don't see them scoring enough to make this a close series. I, I can see them keeping it close, but Dallas really struggles to generate offense and they're going up against Jacob Markstrom and, you know, a flames team that, that, that does a good job at even strength of controlling the play. And so I, they're really facing an uphill battle in that regard, but you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. That being said, because, you know, both teams, I think are going to punish the other one and probably, probably some possibility for bad blood as this thing goes along, continued bad blood. And so, um, you know, Calgary is a, a heavy favorite and justifiably so, but I think Dallas is going to make sure they have to earn it and that nothing comes easy. And one final series here, uh, the Florida Panthers down one, nothing against the Washington Capitals shades of 2010. May I add? Could be man. Like that's, this is one where you could see the momentum really mattering. Like, like this idea because Florida was a pretty heavy favorite. They had such a great season. Like I'm not going to poke any holes in, the, in what the, the Panthers did this year. Uh, they, they, they pretty much led wire to wire in the league, but you know, they also don't have their own track record of, of playoff success. They, they, as I mentioned, they were heavy favorites and they laid an egg in game one. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure there. I talked about Edmonton, you know, maybe Tampa felt this to some degree with the way they play in game one, but they, they need a response in their, their second game here on, on Thursday. They, they need to, it's not just about getting a win, although that's important. I think it's about how they play because, you know, they were headed in game one, but it was never really justified by the gameplay. And ultimately Washington found a way to win out. And, you know, I, th- I think the Capitals probably have a spoiler mentality. Uh, and so this one will be interesting, especially if somehow Washington can find a way to, to go up to nothing and, and be heading home with that lead. Yeah. And with the Panthers goaltending, I mean, Sergei Bobrovsky trying to do as best as he can, but I don't, I, do you have quite, I have questions. I mean, I, I think that was the biggest question mark easily with the Florida Panthers going in, but uh, they cannot afford to have any more slip-ups at that back end. Well, and those questions have been asked of Bobrovsky in years gone by. Like he's got a reputation as not always bringing his best in these moments, you know, from his time in Columbus and, and even Philadelphia before that. And so, you know, they're paying him a lot of money. He's, he's meant to be a backbone of the team. He had a really good year. And so he's, he's got some, he's got some questions to answer too with his, with his performance. And, and so I, that, that, that game too is probably the most interesting for me of the Thursday nights, just, just how Florida pushes back after a loss and now being put, you know, really all year, they just, they won so much they, they haven't really probably faced a ton of what, what, what they, ever, they love to call it adversity in every hockey dressing room, but they, haven't, they probably haven't faced a lot of doubt and, and they got to push through that doubt and, and show that they, they were, they're worthy of their, their favorite status, their home ice status, and everything they accomplished this regular season. That's a good way of spinning it, because I, too, I too would have said adversity, but doubt. Doubt is something that uh, when it creeps in and it infects your mind, you have I, to find a way to battle through it. I don't like adversity because I find it's too much of a blanket term, and, and in the sporting context, it's used often to cover like all kinds of things that 
I might debate aren't really adversity. Like, I just think it's, it's one of those terms that's maybe lost some of its meaning. But in the playoffs, you really are trying to put doubt in the other team's mind. You're trying to make them a little less certain of what they do or that what they do will bring success. You're trying to get them off their game. You're trying to have them not assert themselves. And typically, if you're questioning things, if you're thinking too much, if you're doubting, that's that's when you're not going to bring your best. And, and the Panthers didn't bring their best. And so I'm not saying that doubt's there yet. One game's too quick. But if it happens a second game, they're going to be in a tough spot. And, and look, we saw the, the Tampa Bay Lightning not that long ago, 2019, have a historical regular season. Columbus planted a couple seeds of doubt and won two games on the road and then finished a sweep. And so it can get away from you quickly in a series if, if that doubt does crop in there. Okay. So we've run through all of the different playoff series uh, before we get to stick taps, because it is Thursday um, as promised on the Monday show, we are going to touch off just a little bit on the Winnipeg jets. Also CJ, I realize uh, in writing down the topics for today's episode, there's one topic that uh, I didn't bring up at all. And I it's suddenly just kind of come into my mind just, just in the last few moments here. Uh, we didn't talk about the fact that Carey Price has questions about his future. Do you mind if we kind of tack that on at the end? Sure, well, let's just do it now. I mean, look, Carey Price played a couple games and I had to go back to New York to see a specialist. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot to analyze here, but I think it needs That's to be fair. Said. But, but it needs to be said, like, he doesn't know, the team doesn't know what his future is, um, whether he can play, and that's going to dictate everything. Like, like, everyone wants to jump to the next question, like, will he be traded? Well, I can't see any team trading for him unless there's some reason to believe that he can give them some version of what he's been in the past or that he can play even as a number two or like a 1B, that he can play 30 games in a season. Like, he, he physically doesn't know if that's going to be possible. And so... Um, it's not to say it's, it really just, we'll, we'll have to see what happens here. Um, but you know, Carey Price at this juncture, we can't say for certain what the status of his career is. And so, you know, his health will, will dictate in some ways what decisions get made, um, by the Canadians, by him with, with the no move clause, if they look to trade him and, you know, no one can say with any certainty, even though he did come back and play a few games at the end of the season, what that looks like. And, and I guess the next question that I don't have an answer to is, so what does the process look like? Like, how will they know? How can he know uh, before the start of next season? And, and, you know, that isn't yet clear to me, Uh, but certainly we're, we're looking at a guy who's had a lot of sort of knee issues. He's had a hip issue. Now he's played a lot of games. He's at the age where these things crop up. And so let's hope he can go out and and play on his own terms because it seems to be what he wants to do, but we'll, it's not, uh, it's no guarantee his body's going to allow that to happen. I think he's done. I'm just going to put that out there. I think the fact that he was open with us in Montreal, the media types in saying that that game he played against the Florida Panthers, he had that in his mind that there was, it was possible. It could be his last. The fact like in the final seconds of the game, even though he admitted he thought the play had stopped, he took a moment to like look back at his kid and, and wave at him, wave at them. Sorry. Uh, the fact that he admitted to us plain and simple at his current stage right now, uh, he would not be able to play 55, 60 games. I understand there are second opinions and all that he could still get and whatever, uh, what other offseason training he could get. I 
I need to see a lot before I could make that claim that Carey Price should be available for the Montreal Canadiens next year. And look, anything could happen. I'm not with him in, in the weight room or anything like that. But like, I just have this feeling that it might be done for him. I, I, I really, at the very least, as a 55, 60 game starter, that much is clear. I would just be very surprised if the Montreal Canadiens at this very point were able to go back to him for next season. I, I, that's just my feeling. Yeah. I, well, you're, it's possible. It's possible. Is that it could, puts a different spin too on what we saw at the end of the, the Stanley cup final in last July, where, you know, it's Shea Weber's final game that day, you know, might be the final meaningful game of Carey Price's career. Uh, I know you know, there's, there's personal meaning in the games he played this season, but there was nothing riding on it for the Canadians or really for Price himself. And so, you know, some of the emotion I think we saw wasn't just losing a Stanley Cup final. It was just those two, you know, veteran NHL players probably realizing in the moment that they just didn't know what was ahead of them in terms of being able to have a chance like that again. And that in all likelihood, that was going to be their last best chance to, to win. Yeah. And now the Canadians are in a situation where they have to figure something out with both Carey Price and Shea Weber with regards to their contract, their health, all of that. It's a little bit more clear with regards to the health of Shea Weber, less so with Carey Price, but a lot of questions needing to be answered on the plate of Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon in Montreal. Very interesting stuff there. I'm glad we were able to touch on that. And I'm glad we're going to be able to touch up on the Winnipeg Jets because it seems as if they are going to be going through some wholesale changes as well. Not a guarantee that Dave Lowry, the interim head coach, will be back as well as some of his assistants. Mark Shifley unsure if he's going to be back or whatever's going on there. Paul Staxney in some of his comments talking about how more guys need to be held accountable. All is not well in Winnipeg, so it seems, Siege. No, it was a bad year. And it didn't go well, especially after Paul Maurice, you know, stepped down partway through the season. There's a lot of big personalities in that room. A lot of them been around for a long time. And I think that it was a lot to manage. And, and you know, Dave Lowry ended up being, he was an interim coach. It's a bit like a supply teacher. Like, I think it's hard maybe to get everyone's attention. And it, it just, it, it kind of fell apart. And I don't think one person singularly is to blame I would expect that they're going to bring in a completely new coaching staff. You know, it certainly sounds like that's the intent from Kevin Shevadayoff to, to do a full search and, and, you know, make some changes. You know, that's an organization that doesn't make a lot of change historically. They've been pretty loyal. You know, they've only ever had two full-time head coaches. Um, their, their assistants have been on the staff over a long period of time as well. And so those changes can make a bigger impact maybe than you might think. Cause this, this isn't the sort of organization that cycled through six coaches in nine years or anything like that. And so those changes are a little more fundamental there. Probably the biggest player question is the Shifley one, you know, his comments pretty hard to interpret them as anything. Like usually if you're talking openly about your relationship ending, usually it's going to end. And he was talking openly about his relationship with the jets ending. Um, you know, he didn't come to any conclusions, but I think it's a sign of the fact that, it's going to be tough to, to keep that marriage going. And so what does that trade look like? I mean, I don't, I don't even know what that is, but that to me, like when you say wholesale changes, I don't think it's really wholesale changes because you're going to have a new coaching staff and then you're maybe looking at a Shifley trade, which is obviously a big deal, but you know, I still think Kyle Connor and Nikolai Ehlers and, and these guys are, are the backbone of that team. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily see, a lot of big changes beyond that, but those are big changes. And so let, let's see how that plays out. 
you know, the, the, the question I'll have is what happens if they go to the trade market with Shifley and it's not, you know, what they feel they need. I mean, that, that'll be a difficult one to manage. Uh, I mean, maybe he can come back. It's stranger things have happened. We've had players publicly ask for trades and then come back and have career years after the trades didn't happen. And so, um, you know, that's, that, that's, that's, it's a, it's an off season with the high potential, I think for big headlines in Winnipeg, but I, I don't see it as like a full teardown or anything like that. I, I still think they're going to be a good team. They have a lot of good players. They just have to figure out a way to play defensively more sound. I mean, that's their issue. Connor Hellebuck's a great goaltender, but they're, they've asked way too much of him, even in some of the years where they've had success, like the, the year in the North division, they got to the second round before playing Montreal, but they just defensively that the metrics weren't very good. And so I think that they need to, to make some fundamental changes, but you know, a lot of that can come with the, the coaching decision they're about to make as well. I mean, I know I said, I, I see your point with regards to wholesale changes, but this is also a Winnipeg Jets team that has underwhelmed since that long playoff run. They got stopped by the Vegas Golden Knights. This, the core that they have at its best should be able to be making good runs every year. I don't see how you don't make significant changes. And maybe it's not the same thing as wholesale changes, but something has to happen this off season, whether you're saying, you know what, we're starting all over again, or you're making an aggressive retool to put yourself in a position where you can be a contending team in the Western conference again, and whether it's dealing away Mark Shifley. And of course you're going to have to put in a new head coach, whether it's you, you're somehow going back to Dave Lowry or you're getting a new head coach. I'm with you. They're going no, to get it's someone a new new coaching staff, so that's a big to be there. Like that's a fresh start and that's a chance to play differently systematically. It's a chance to deploy the players differently. And then if you're trading Mark Shifley, like in a lot of ways, he's been their franchise player. He was the first player they drafted after getting the team back in Winnipeg and, and has been a key part of what they do. He's, you know, he's scored a lot of points for them. Um, you know, it just feels like maybe that, that that marriage is on the way to an ending. Um, again, that's no guarantee though. You, that's a, that's a big trade to make. He's got two years left on his contract. And so you have to really be careful with, with what you do there. But, you know, the fact that it's discussed openly, I think is, you know, a, a sign of some of the, the disharmony behind the scenes. And so, you know, there's rumors during the season, maybe that the Shifley might be dealt. I don't think there's anything to that throughout the year, but now it at least has to be looked at and considered. Those would be big changes to me. Um, and then, you know, there's always things around the fringes you do, but you're talking about changing a core piece of your team, your, your number one center, more or less. You've already traded Patrick Line too. Don't forget that. I mean, Pierre-Luc Dubois, there's a question – but his future was the main piece you got back from line A. I mean, there's a lot of business to be done. And, and I don't think there's any question the Jets look different on opening night in October than they did uh, play in their last game uh, last weekend. No question. And that is definitely a team we're going to be having an eye on throughout the offseason. Okay, we've run through a lot of topics today. It's time to get to stick taps. Uh, Siege, do you want to start or should I start? I've got an easy one, so I'll take it. Uh, Scotiabank Arena fans. Uh, rightly so. I've been to literally hundreds of games in Toronto, NHL games. The, the fans there get get sort of jeered or mocked for their lack of passion, for their late arrival, for hanging out in the Platinum Club underneath drinking Chardonnay instead of sitting in the seats. <laughs> are trying to rehab their reputation as a playoff team. Uh, I think that the fans have a chance to rehab some of their reputation in the building because the first two games were great um, in terms of how they responded. You know, after a long pandemic, kudos to those that maybe hadn't seen a playoff game live in a long time, or maybe we're seeing our first ever live playoff game. I thought they met the moment and there's at least one more guaranteed there this, this spring, if not more. And, and, you know, I trust they'll continue to do the same. So stick tap to the fans that 
made hockey fun again in the playoffs for, for those of us uh, watching up in the press box. Good. That's really well said. A lot of people were making the remark that, wow, they did. I don't think they'd ever heard Scotiabank Arena that loud. So, yeah, kudos to Leafs fans. I'll take the tougher one here, uh, and I will give kudos to Canadians fans and the hockey world who descended on Montreal earlier this week for Guy Lafleur's funeral. We did mention uh, his passing and, and all the tributes that have come in in previous episodes, but uh, we felt a man of his legacy not worthy of just, just giving him a simple stick tap. But I think we have to acknowledge the funeral and, and the visitation lying in state at the Bell Centre these last few days. And when I mean people from the hockey world, Joe Sackett, for example, who was actually a really early roommate and early on in his career uh, when they were both in uh, Quebec City with the Nordzik, Joe Sackett in Montreal, the day of game one of the first round series between the Avs and the Predators, members of the Toronto Maple Leafs also there. And of course, all most of the Canadians legends uh, still around uh, to pay tribute to Guy Lafleur. Uh, just something amazing to be seen i i really wanted to be there in person for the funeral but other things kind of got in the way but just following it on social media pretty incredible and the fans who were lining up outside to pay their respects there were fans who had lined up for hours uh people who had driven in from all different parts of the country to be there to pay respects to one of the nhl's greatest players and an emblem and an emblematic player of what it means to be a Montreal Canadiens player and someone who means so much to the province of Quebec. So I give a stick tap to fans and the hockey world who all pay tribute uh, to Guy Lafleur these last few days. Well yeah. said. Man. Yeah, that's a good way to end it off here. Siege, uh, another good one in the books. We'll be back on Monday with a brand new episode. Uh, safe travels to Tampa Bay. Maybe by the time this to this podcast, CJ might already be landing in uh, Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, we'll new back they got pineapples on them, man. I'm, I'm pumped to break them out at the pool. <laughs> uh, looking forward to the pool picks, my man. Uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to all the great SDPN content uh, wherever you can listen to that content. For CJ, I'm Julian saying so long. Peace. Enjoy the games, folks. The Chris Johnston Show. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Inside the game, twice a week. Follow Chris on Twitter at Reporter Chris. And follow Julian McKenzie at JK McKenzie. The Chris Johnston Show.